At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Overflow, from Him, through us, for all, as we explore Paul's letter to the Church of Corinth. Together, we'll focus our attention on the gifts of God and see that we're not meant to keep His blessings to ourselves, but to live as vessels of His abounding grace. Through his word, we can have a touch from heaven. Join me in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, in the mighty name of Jesus, I say thank you today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for faithful men like Jared. God, thank you for faithful uh, men and women who have answered your call to go abroad, to spread the goodness of your gospel wherever you call them to. We praise you that it's you who is doing that call. And I praise you that you have put that call on many in this room. It doesn't necessarily have to be to Liberia or to a foreign nation, but those of us that have put our faith, hope, and trust in you as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we can experience your presence by the indwelled Holy Spirit and a call to missions. Every single one of us is called to make the name of the Lord Jesus famous. Every single one of us is called to preach the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ that would draw people to repentance so that they might be saved. Every single one of us is called to perform good deeds, to gain goodwill, to spread good news so that when people see it, they would glorify our Father in heaven. So God, I thank you for our worship team that leads us in praise. I thank you for our prayer team that is laboring right now for the ministry of the word. I thank you for brothers and sisters that are faithful to go into the mission field. I thank you that we can commission yet another person going on a mission trip from this stage. What a privilege, what a joy, what an honor it is. And I pray that it would only increase of those from this, your local church, that you would send out to do your global work in the name of Jesus. So I thank you today. Please till the soil of our hearts that the seed of your word would fall fresh into us and that we would then bear a harvest of righteousness. Give us ears to hear your word, your gospel, your good news. Give us eyes to see King Jesus high and lifted up. Your word says that if we lift you up, you will draw all people unto you. So we're lifting you up, Jesus, because we know that without people being drawn to you, we can't finish this work. We can't, we can't even achieve any part of this good work if you don't draw us near to you. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. We trust you. And in the mighty, matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we have prayed. Together we say amen and hallelujah. Let's put our hands together for Jesus, church. Wonderful. Just a few brief uh, times for us to continue to praise God. Let's praise God for our worship team. Come on. For all of our kids, you are, you are now dismissed to kids' ministry. You got to see a commissioning today. Hallelujah. I pray that we get to commission one of you uh, into service one day. So let's continue to praise God for our kids. And then, for mother, again, it's Mother's Day, so we're excited about it being Mother's Day. You'll see back here on our way out today, if you want to stop at the photo booth uh, and get your photo snap with your family, amen. Uh, if you want to grab a rose, if you're a mom or know a mom or just want to give it to a mom, amen. Do it. Make sure you don't prick yourself on the thorns. Um, it, it's a great day to be here together on Mother's Day, and I'm so happy. Uh, this is a great week. We get to start a great week today uh, on Sunday. Sunday is the first day of the week, amen? 
Wouldn't you rather start a week on Sunday than Monday at work, right? So we get to start a great week today because uh, at the end of this week on Friday night, we've got the talent show. That's right. A couple of people are excited about that. I don't have the, the worship team on stage to back me up. Usually they're screaming in the microphone. Um, but a great talent show where people can come and compete for second place because uh, first place is already locked in by the staff. We have an act ready for y'all that, woo, yeah, get ready. It's going to be great. Uh, yes, hallelujah. <laughs> Talent show on Friday, 6 p.m., annual celebration on Sunday at 6 p.m. A lot of really good stuff going on this week at your local church. Uh, but we are wrapping up our series today. We've been in this series five weeks uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 called Overflow, where we have seen that all of God's resources have come from him. Everything comes from him through us to all. From God through us to all. So we're going to wrap up this series today in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 8 today. So 2 Corinthians 9 and 8. If you don't have the Bible with you, you can read it on the, word, on the screen behind me. If you can't see that far, make sure you get a Bible in your lap. Amen? You guys need God's word much more than you need my word. And I want to start uh, with a name that some of us may not know. And that's okay. I didn't know her name either until I started studying for this Sunday. Uh, her name is Jessie O'Neill. Jessie O'Neill was the granddaughter of one of the presidents, a past president of General Motors. And Jessie O'Neill grew up in a lifestyle of wealth and abundance because of the family that she was born into. And she wrote a book in 1996 called The Golden Ghetto. And what The Golden Ghetto was about is just how maladaptive we can become when we focus so much more on things and stuff and money and it catalogs something called a sickness called affluenza that it is like a sickness or a flu from being affluent and one of the things that she writes about this book uh, in the introduction is this I want to read it verbatim from her so this book explores the peculiarly American notion that money will guarantee happiness, that money will bring us personal fulfillment, that money will strengthen our relationships, that money will give us smarter, better adjusted children. In short, money will make all our dreams come true. Now, this is something that I wouldn't say that only in the United States of America we are plagued with, but this is a Western materialistic construct that the more we have, the better our life will be. Amen? See, we were tempted to say amen. But we know that money doesn't fix anything. The only problems that money fixes are money problems, right? Money does not buy you happiness. We know that. And in her book where she catalogs this, you know, she talks about this sickness that because of the life she was raised in, she didn't understand consequences. She didn't understand that, that she had to work for stuff. She didn't understand how this sickness, this constant uh, desire to hoard, this, this rampant uh, need to go get more stuff because then I'll be happy and, and how it always leaves us dissatisfied or discontent and how it always leaves us feeling insufficient. And the fruit of this sickness is greed. And the fruit of greed is death. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6 has something to say about that. So as we think about this, again, we've been in this series on generosity and we always, you know, are trying to get more, trying to go out there and make more so I can do more things. This is the lie that gets spun to us. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, the Apostle Paul writing to his spiritual son, Timothy, teaching him how to be a pastor, how to lead people. And he says this to him, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Notice he doesn't say those who have money. He said, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So as we look at this 
sickness of affluenza, this cry. Sometimes it's a whisper, sometimes it's a scream. You don't have enough. You're never going to have enough. What you do have isn't good enough. We see these siblings walking hand in hand of greed, death, ruin, and destruction. And what we need to learn today is that everything we need has come from God. Everything he, he could possibly need for us and from us comes from him. That's why we've been in this series called Overflow, realizing everything comes from God. Everything passes through us and it's supposed to go to all for his great mission. And this is where we have to answer the questions of, are, are we uh, possessed by our possessions, right? Do you have nice things or do nice things have you? Are you consumed? Are you being eaten alive by this consumerism, by this materialism, by this constant yearning to go get more? Because if I get more, then I will be better liked. And if I have more, then I will become more. And friends, that is a lot from the pit of hell. So what we have to understand today is what the Apostle Paul is teaching the Corinthian Christians about this overflowing grace that comes from God our Father, about this thing that we need to understand that everything, everything we have, even our very lives, comes from our Father in heaven. And I know that's not a lot of fun to say amen to, but every single thing we have has come from God, and we need to pay, pay very close attention to what we need to learn uh, about this. We're going we're gonna to really hammer these two hinge words today. I want you to re repeat after me. So that. So that. Let's do it with a little bit of gusto, okay? So that. So that. Come on, do it with some attitude, like you're yelling at somebody. So that. So come on, I saw somebody snap. Hallelujah. There you go. We're there. We made it. That's what I was waiting for. God gives so that. We can give. Everything we have, God gives so that we can give. Our goal is to become more Christ-like. Amen? Every single one of us is in this room today because we want to become more Christ-like. If you aren't, we have people praying that by the end of this message, that will be your aim, right? Uh, so we're going to look at two truths that the Apostle Paul gives to the Corinthian Christians as we wrap up this series, Overflow, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 8, and we're going to go through the end of the chapter. So two truths, two points. Uh, the first one, we're going to read verses 8, 9, and 10 of 2 Corinthians 9. The end of verse 7 says, God loves a cheerful giver. Come on, that's good. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. I could just close my Bible and say amen right now, right? That God is able to make all grace abound to us so that in everything, at every time, in every way, we can abound in good works. It is an amazing promise that we see right away in verse 8. The problem that we're going to have to get to today is that the majority of us in here don't believe it. If we believed it, our whole lives would look differently, right? That God is able to make all grace abound to you or us so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Verse 9, as it is written in Psalm 112, he, God, has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. 
So point number one, and this is the first place we have to go if we're going to understand that everything we have comes from God, is trust. Trust in God's all-sufficiency. If you believe that, that the gospel is Jesus plus your good works and that's how you're going to get everything you need, you are mistaken, friends. That good works come out of our uh, grabbing of Jesus, of us, in the gospel. But we have to trust in God's all-sufficiency. So if you haven't been with us all five weeks of this series, let's briefly recap what's going on. So the Apostle Paul, uh, along with some brothers, he's with Titus, maybe Apollos, but his name's not listed here. Some other faithful brothers from the church in Jerusalem from the churches in Macedonia, from the churches in Corinth. He's traveling around taking up an offering. And he's taking up a financial offering because the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, part of the Christian church in Jerusalem, because of uh, heavy-handed oppression from the Roman government, because of uh, backbiting and, and, and uh, Jewish hostilities toward believers, there has been a famine in the land. And those brothers and sisters are hurting. So Paul is saying, we need to partner together in this ministry. We need to raise some funds Raise some money so we can help our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And throughout chapters 8 and 9, he spends time defending his ministry, reminding the Corinthian Christians about how encouraged he was by their aggression to give. They really wanted to give. They really wanted to be a part of this. And then some time went by and, you know, they got a little bit lukewarm in their aggression. And he's saying, you need to be ready to give. You need to be generous. And the Apostle Paul makes this really intentionally obvious appeal to their honor, and to their character. And again, we, we talked about this two weeks ago. There is a temptation to misread this letter to say, Paul keeps telling them that they want to give, and he's so happy and so proud, but it's almost like he's guilting them in to give. It's almost like he's saying, well, you don't want to be humiliated if you don't give, do you? But again, we have to look at the figures of speech in Scripture. We have to look at what Paul is doing here, and he is saying that I've seen this honor in you. I've seen this good desire to give and to partner with God in the work of the ministry, and now we need to continue it. So why does he appeal to honor and shame? Because in the first century, in a Greco-Roman world, which is where this letter was first being read, there were perhaps no two greater culture-shaping virtues than honor and shame. Folks would do just about anything to maintain some sort of honorability amongst people. You've probably seen somebody with this tattooed on them, death before dishonor. That came, somebody said, mm-mm, real loud. You've never seen him, okay. <laughs> that came from the Roman government. That came from the Roman Empire, right? That it was a common saying in the Roman army. Death before dishonor. I would do nothing to bring dishonor onto myself, my family, the Roman Empire, Caesar, because I would die, right? So death before dishonor. So they would do anything, just about anything, to chase honor and to make sure that they sidestepped anything that would bring shame onto their life, onto their household, onto their benefactor or their rabbi, basically their tribe. And, and we understand what that feels like today. I don't know if it's quite so much honor and shame are the two deepest culture-shaping virtues that we have today, I would say two uh, pretty deep ones are individuality and intolerance, that we will do just about anything to seek individuality. We'll do just about anything to make sure we stand out from the crowd. We'll do just about anything to make sure we establish our reputation and make sure that people know we can get it on our own. Somebody help me sing this song. I-N-D-E-P. Oh, see a couple. A couple people got it. All right. Maybe if you can uh, help teach our lighter brothers and sisters. Uh, <laughs> amen. See, I could just say amen and we could walk out. <laughs> Kayvon, you started dancing, bro. <laughs> like, <laughs> you, love it. you went for it. 
I appreciate it, right? Uh, so there's this idea of like independence and individuality and I got it my way. And I'm going to establish something for me. I'm going to get mine, my reputation. And we see people chasing it all over the place. And then intolerance on the other side is the thing that we will do almost anything to sidestep and make it be a glancing blow. Because one of the worst things that we've seen happen is that if you don't agree with me, you're all of a sudden a bigot. You're all of a sudden prejudiced. You're all of a sudden non-receptive to my way of life. And these are still things that shape us today. Honor, shame, individuality, intolerance. But church, we have to be very, very, very careful about which lens we're looking at this through. If we are looking at this through the lens of the opinion of the world's kingdom and the opinion of man, then we'll start chasing things so that the world doesn't get mad at us. And where does that usually lead? I'll tell you, hell. But if we look at it through God's kingdom and Christ's cross, then we see that our whole lives exist to bring honor to one individual, Jesus Christ himself, right? Our whole lives are supposed to exist to bring honor to the individual Savior, Christ himself. And we would do nothing to bring shame or reproach onto the name of Christ. God, help us if we do. And thank God there's mercy and forgiveness that's available to us. But the intolerance that we're supposed to be calibrating towards is the intolerance of sin in our own hearts, not the intolerance of others. Not saying you don't, you don't agree with me or you hurt my feelings, so I am intolerant of you. No, we must be much more intolerant about the, in, about the, uh, the sin and that exists in our own hearts. So these are still culture-shaping virtues today, right? So Paul makes this appeal to the Corinthians. He's saying we need to partner together in this ministry. We need to get after this. We need to raise an offering so we can help our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then in verse 8, he kind of shifts the, the appeal from their own honor and their own character onto God's all-sufficient character. Again, this is a huge, huge blessing for us, right? If you had a scripture to memorize this week, please memorize 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 15. Read it every day of your life and watch how much your life will change. When you realize that God is able to make all grace abound to you, hallelujah, what is too hard for you, right? That, that we, when we really understand this, that that's when we start to really understand the character and nature of Christ. Because the trap we fall into, right, is all the good stuff I have I worked hard for. I did it myself. Now, does the Bible care about hard work? Absolutely it does. But whose hard work got you everything you have? Christ on the cross. That's whose hard work got you everything you have. Because without his hard work, you don't even have breath in your lungs. Right? Without God's hard work, making sure that your heart is beating. How many of you have told your heart to beat? Right? So God is sustaining every single part of our lives. So we have to understand that God was there from the beginning. God knew us from eternity past. God allows us to draw breath in our lungs. God is the one that brings us close to him. God is the one that enables us to hear from him. God is the one who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, purchasing victory that now can belong to us. So when we see that, we have to say, what good thing have I gotten myself? When we understand this, this is, again, this is about theology. This is about our understanding of who God is. Because when we don't understand it, we get trapped. And when we understand that he can make all grace abound to us, and he's the giver of all good things, he's the source and the purpose of everything in our life, things start to change. Grace abounds from God to us so that grace can abound from us to all. Okay? So if we have limited grace in our heart, it's not about our circumstances. It's about what do we believe about God. That is ultimately what it is, right? And, and I think, you know, I think about Job. 
uh, when, when I think about this statement, right? Job, uh, he had a tough life, and most of us don't read pa- past like chapter 16 or 17. Did you know there's over 40 chapters in the book of Job? Many of us don't know this, right? Um, so we see like all this bad stuff happening, and we're like, I don't want to read this anymore, right? God just gave Job to the devil, and the devil took all his farm, flock, field, took his, his family away. This sounds terrible, but then later on, Job, rightfully, uh, and, and then you see his terrible friends. He's just got bad friends, right? Job needs better friends, right? So, uh, and then later on, Job's like mad. He's like, God, why, why would you do all this? Like, I was faithful. I was righteous. And God's like, yeah, you know, you, you got a point, Job. Um, but for the next three chapters, I'm going to ask you, where were you when I formed the earth? Where were you when I hung uh, Pleiades and Orion in the sky? Where, where were you? Do you know every single time? And this is how detailed God is. Do you know every single time a mountain goat gives birth, Job? Because I do, right? So he's asking him these where were you when questions, and he, and he asks him, tell me if you have understanding. And then Job responds in a beautiful way. In chapter 42, I think this is tattoo worthy, right? Anybody's looking for their next tattoo, I got you covered, right? Job says, therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know, right? So when we're challenging God, he's like, no, 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 no. Literally everything you have is because of me. The only reason you're alive is because of me. The only reason you're breathing is because of me. And when we can understand that, that's when we start to understand God's all-sufficiency. That's when we start to understand this grace that has abounded to us. When we can be thankful for everything he's done, oh yes, that's when grace abounds from us. So Paul is convincing the Corinthian Christians, saying, all the grace you've had is because God has given it to you. And he has caused it to abound upon you. And yeah, you're materially wealthy. You are are well-to-do. You are affluent. And then he talks about this all-sufficiency, saying you're completely content. You have everything you need. He's like convincing them. And he's convincing them because this was a common argument in the first century. In Greco-Roman philosophy, self-sufficiency, like all-sufficiency, that was all the rage. That they were trying to say, like, I am a fully formed man. I can do it all, all by myself. I think, therefore I am, right? So I am doing it myself because I can think, right? So when we look at this, we see why Paul is talking about this all-sufficiency. He's saying, no, 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 no. No, your sufficiency comes from the Lord. All grace abounds from the Lord so that you can even try to be sufficient in everything. And he's preaching to them saying, like, I'm actually trying to give you something by allowing you to give. I want you to partner in this generosity because I want to give you something. I want to free you from the dominance of the quest for life's stuff and things, right? So when we think like, how, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to ask anyone to raise your hand, but we have been dominated by I need more, I need this, I need what the world says I have. If I don't get that new iPhone, then I'm not going to be cool. If I don't have these new Jordans, then I'm not going to make it. If I don't uh, rise up to, you know, senior vice president by this age, then I'm not going to, I won't have made it. My life won't be a success. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians like, no, 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 no. I want to bless you. I want to free you from having to chase all that mess that's going to pass away anyway. It's not going to last, right? So he presses in in verses 9 and 10 when he quotes Psalm 112. And and really simply, he says this. He says, God has given freely to the poor who have received because of God's righteousness. And then he says that the seed came from God to the Corinthians so they could sow. The bread came from God to the Corinthians so they could feed others. Really what he's saying is you don't have anything apart from God. If you have a seed to sow, where did the seed come from? God. 
If you have bread to eat and to feed others, where did the bread come from? God, right? And this is the hard part. So I'm going to, yeah, we'll see. We'll see if anyone leaves after this one. Um, if you're on a mission with God, if you've partnered with mission with Jesus, like actually a partner in his mission, right? Not just like I come to church, but a partner in his actual mission. Do you know that Jesus has a mission? Do you know that there's like a big rescue mission that's been going on since the beginning of humanity? And like we're a part of it? Like we're all like in an army? Did you know that? If you are in partnership with God's mission, you will always be rich enough to be generous. Okay, yeah, let's, let's, we got four amens. Hallelujah, no one's gonna leave. Uh, you will always be rich enough to be generous. Now, if you believe that, do you all believe that? Do you believe that if you're in Christ, you'll be rich enough to be generous? Is that something to get excited about? Come on, if y'all won the lottery, you'd be doing backflips. But if you don't believe that, and perhaps your heart is struck with doubt and discontent, it says much more about your belief in God's grace than it does your belief about your resources. It says much more if you say, well, I'm, I'll never be rich enough to be generous, or maybe when my money's right, I'll be generous. And, and God is saying like, hold on. God is able to make all grace abound to you at all times to, be, to do every good work, right? So, so if we doubt that statement of I'll always be rich enough to be generous, then we're doubting God, not ourselves. And, and don't get me wrong, right? It's all about perspective. We're, so we're going to jump into practical perspective here. It's all about perspective. I realize that many of us, myself included, our bank account can't float every act of generosity. Amen? Okay. We're all, we got a couple laughing amens there, like, if you even knew, right? But this is where the, this is where the trap's always been, right? That when we think about generosity, we think about money, when you think about generosity, you should be thinking about Jesus, right? So just because you don't have the money, that doesn't mean you can't show up. That doesn't mean you can't serve. Just because you've got something going on at work, that doesn't mean when your kids say, Dad, do you have time to play with me? And you're like, oh, I got to work on this project. No, because when we get trapped in not having enough in our mind and our heart, we grip real tight. And then we can't be generous anywhere. God is calling for a lifestyle of generosity. So let's... Sometimes we lose perspective. How many of you got a phone? Come on. Show it. Raise it in the air. Let's go. Come on. Keep your hand up in the air. It's all good. You get to pull your phone out in church. Don't worry. You can turn the screen away if you want. I know some of you are on stuff you're not supposed to be on. I know. It's okay. All right. If your phone is not a smartphone, put it down. Did you know that two-thirds of the adults on earth don't have a smartphone? So you are already in the top 33% of wealth in the world with a smartphone in your hand. So again, it's all about perspective. I'm not, nobody's gonna raise hands here. How many, like, don't raise your hand, just think. How many of y'all got a job and a car? You can raise your hand if you want, I'm, I won't look. If you have a job and a car, in any condition, you are in the top 15% of wealth globally. Now, if all your basic needs are met, which is not like I have a different pair of Aldos for every day of the week, no. Those aren't basic needs, right? You got shoes on your feet, clothes on your back, food on your table, all those good things, right? And you have a job, you live in a house or an apartment, and you have two cars in any condition. You are in the top 5% of wealth globally. So 
just with some of those figures, and again, it's all about perspective, right? I get it. I understand debt-to-income ratios. I understand P&L sheets. I understand all this stuff, right? But it's all about perspective. That if by many of our own admission, we're at least in the top 30% of wealth globally, how does that impact our generosity? When we realize that there's people with literally nothing praising God harder than we are, and, and we got all kinds of stuff. Some of us are in that top 5% of wealth globally, and we're like, oh, God, that meeting didn't go well. It's like, well, hold on. Let's think about everyone else. I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad for what's going on all over the world. I'm just saying perspective matters deeply. Many of us are crazy rich in this room, crazy rich globally, because there is not the United States of America Jesus, right? He is the Jesus of all. Everywhere, every country, every continent, the whole globe, all the universes, everything, everywhere, he is the one of all. It's not just Jesus in America, right? American Jesus is not a thing, right? So if you see a picture of him, just say that's wrong. That's not who that is. Christians in the United States of America give away about 2.5% of our income to charitable organizations. Did you know that during the Great Depression, Christians gave away 3.3% of their income? So how is it that when people were literally dying on the street, we've become less generous. How, how is that the case? Again, because I think we've been trapped. We've been trapped and, and lied to by a world that just wants to steal stuff from us. The world says it's giving you stuff, but it's actually taking from you. So when we understand that God has given everything to us, then we understand that we'll always be rich enough to be generous, right? When we look at Luke 21 and we look at the woman who gave two mites, right, which probably amounted to something just under a quarter of a penny. Was Jesus pleased with her giving? Absolutely. He's like, you've given more than anyone else. And these people were heaping money in there. He was pleased because he understood perspective. And this is just the material, church. We're not even talking about the spiritual yet, right, that a couple chapters earlier in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul said that for our sake, God made Jesus Christ, a person who knew no sin, to literally become sin so that we can be the righteousness of God. There is nothing more attractive than that. There is nothing that is, that is, can cause us to be wealthier than that. Jesus took all of our shame and gave us his character. Jesus took all of our poverty and gave us eternal, never fading away riches in heaven. Jesus took our sinful selves, our sinful unrighteousness, and put his own righteousness on us. The Father made all grace all spiritual grace abound to us so that we will always have all sufficiency in all things through Christ. And, and friends, being spiritually poor is far more dangerous than being materially poor. Being spiritually poor, not knowing where any of it comes from, is far more dangerous than being materially poor. So we've already talked about being rich in Christ, but I also have to give us a, a call to action here. It's not like the nice thing to do, the right thing to do. Uh, it's not uh, something that I should do or maybe could do. We actually literally don't have a choice. If our brothers and sisters are in need and we have access to serve them. So if anybody is going through anything in our church, and I, I'm not going to talk about figures necessarily, but tens of thousands of dollars have gone out from your local church for eviction prevention, for vehicles, for basic needs, because we want to make sure that we remain a generous church. And I believe that that's how God is going to keep us being generous, because if we hold on to stuff that's all going to pass away anyway... He's like, you're not, you're not choosing the greater portion. The greater portion is generosity. So again, we don't even have a choice. If you are actually in Christ, we don't even have a choice if we have excess of anything to serve our brothers and sisters that have less than 
of whatever it is. And I know that's not super popular. I know that I figured that one was going to get zero amens, right? But it's the truth. It is the truth. So when we understand this, we praise God for his all-sufficiency. When we understand this, we say, God, thank you so much that I have not just enough, I have more than enough because you've blessed me. I would say that if any of us honestly looked at our lives, the vast, vast majority of all of us would say we have more than enough than we need to live and serve Christ. So if you're, if you're clapping, help somebody, okay? Yeah, you can clap, but you gotta help somebody. So we abundantly give and we praise God for his all-sufficiency. And the, beauty, the beautiful thing about us being in Christ is this, that did you know that you're actually closer and you have more in common and more responsibility to your brothers in Christ than you do the people that went to your alma mater? Do you know that like we, we have more responsibility and we're closer to all of our brothers and sisters who have professed Christ in this room than you are to Pontiac Northern class of 84. Like, you might feel deeply connected to them, but the real connection is found in Christ. And we see that. That's what Paul is doing here. He's drawing us into something that we must understand if we're going to get out of this series, right? If we're actually going to finish this series, we got to understand what Paul is doing here. He's saying we have more responsibility to people that are in Christ than maybe people that graduated from Michigan, Michigan State, or Ohio State. But we will kill people that went to the wrong university. Even believers. I'll, I'll prove it to you. You ready? Go green. See, there's like eight people, right? See, you won't do it. Somebody said go blue. We have deep allegiances. Why wouldn't you just make me feel better as your brother? I'm being honest. I'm serious. You can't assent to say an action verb and a color to comfort your brother. Be because it's the wrong university. OH! Man, not anyone. No one. Kia. <laughs> Y'all got a good marriage. <laughs> so, so, church, we see like, how we prop up so many other things that get in our way of real, authentic generosity with our brothers and the call that we have to our brothers and our sisters. Because Paul is, is talking about something pretty incredible here. As we wrap up this, the, the, our last five verses of this series, point number two is to pursue the deeper fruit of giving. So point number one is trust. First, you have to trust God's all-sufficiency. If we don't trust his all-sufficiency, it won't matter, right? We're going to continue to trust him a little bit here and there. How many of you have ever had your trust broken in a relationship? Is it as easy to trust that person? The next time they say something, no. Has God ever actually let you down? No. Your feelings might have been hurt, and I am sorry. Like, I genuinely am sorry if, if we felt like God has let us down. But the fact is, he hasn't. He's given us Jesus. No matter what we've been through, a, a lot of people in this room, and I have the privilege of knowing my story, and a lot of people's story in this room have lived through hell. But God hasn't let them down, and they know that. That's why they're here, right? So, Trust God's all-sufficiency. And then point number two is that we pursue the deeper fruit of giving. Let's look at these last five verses, starting in verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. 
For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Will they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you? Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The point that Paul is making here is really kind of the big idea of this whole sermon series. The big idea of his whole uh, uh, capital campaign that he's trying to raise money for the Jerusalem Christians is that when we demonstrate the righteousness of God by passing on by our own generosity the abundance of God in our lives, people will pour out praise and thanksgiving to God. So when we are doing what God has called us to do, people are going to praise God. And I know that for many of us, we want the praise, right? We can't imagine doing something good and then somebody else get the praise for it. But as a newsflash, perhaps, that is the life of a Christian. That is what we're called to do. We are called to do good deeds so we can gain goodwill and spread good news. We are called to do good deeds so people will glorify our Father in heaven, not ourselves. This is what we are called to do, friends. One of the most famous statements of faith is the West, Westminster Catechism, and it says that the chief end of humanity is to glorify God. The chief end of us, of our whole life, is to glorify God, and here's the part that we don't really believe in, and enjoy him forever. But do you know why a bunch of people don't enjoy God? Because of Christians. Because we don't live our life with unbelievable joy. Because we don't take every opportunity to be generous with hilarious joy, like he just said. That's what we've been talking about for the last five weeks, church, is this, right? And, you know, I've had many conversations with people about, like, you know, I don't know if my family wants me to, to be here at this church anymore. I'm like, well, that's probably because you're miserable around them. If we walked out of here and were overjoyed at the grace that has abounded to us, that's when people would be like, oh, I want what you got. What, wherever you just came from, that's what I want. If we stop tipping waitresses 4% after we get out of church, right, people want to be like, wow, why are y'all so happy? What's going on? The food isn't that good. I work here. Like what? Why are you so thrilled? And you say, Jesus. Jesus has overflowed grace in my life. Abounded grace in my life. So there's a deeper fruit of giving, church, that this is, um, this is deeply important to my life. Deeply. This is, the, this is the only reason I'm here, actually, to be honest with you. Uh, every day, it's the only reason I'm here. So there was a fruit, an initial fruit of this ministry of giving that Paul was raising money so that food and supports and resources could be purchased, material goods could be purchased, and they would go to the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem that were hurting. It's all good. The baby can pop him. It's good. It, he's not crying. Um, but it did so much more than that. And if we don't understand the cultural context here, then we think it's just like a mission trip. It's just the transactional food pantry gift that was given, which is great, and that's good. But there is much, much more that's involved here. And the much more that's involved here is the church in Jerusalem was largely made up of Jewish people. 
The church in Corinth and Macedonia, these churches, were largely made up of people that were been considered to be Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles were taught to hate each other. Jews were taught that Gentiles, people without God, were dogs. That is what they were taught. So imagine the deeper fruit of generosity that is being born by a Gentile church giving resources to people that were taught to hate them. This is the deeper fruit of giving. That in Christ, real peace in a place where peace should not be able to be found is evident. This is why I come here every single day. I want to share my gospel with you. Now, I know some of you might be like, pump the brakes. What are you talking about? My gospel. There's only one gospel. Yes, and my gospel happens to fall up under the only gospel, the only good news that will never perish. And that's the, the good news of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. But, but this is my gospel. I don't know how many of you know this. Um, my wife would tell you. Some of the staff would tell you. My prayer partners would tell you. I believe with everything in me that this congregation will change the entire world. I'm not just trying to pump anybody up. I swear to you. I believe with my whole being that this congregation, you people right here, can change and will change the entire world. Now hear me. Because, yeah, you can give God praise for his gospel. It's his gospel. Where else on earth? I've been all over the world. Sometimes for the wrong, more, more times than not for the wrong reasons. Sometimes for the right reasons. And I have never seen a place anywhere. The World Cup, a Lions game, a bar, a library, a prestigious university. Where you would sit next to the people that you're sitting next to today. Where ethnic barriers can be crushed. Where educational boundaries can be shattered. Where economic boundaries are shattered. Nowhere else other than right here have I seen a group of people like this sitting next to each other. And I firmly believe in the depth of my heart that perhaps when brothers and sisters in South Africa who have been ravaged by apartheid would look and see a white man and a black man holding hands in the name of Jesus and they would say, that's this, that's what I want. That's what I've been dying for. Or they would see somebody that is homeless being embraced by somebody that has vacation homes. And they would say, that's the real Jesus. Because we haven't seen it. You have 23-year-old kids like I spent time with yesterday saying, I ain't down with that religious S-H-I-T. And I'm like, me neither, man. Like, let's, let's talk about it. Like, <laughs> let's talk. And he was right. He was like, pastors, get up and, and tell you that you're sinners so they can get money from you. And I'm like, you ain't wrong. But that's not this. So, church, I believe it with everything in me. I'm not, and I'm, this isn't, it's not in the notes. It's not a sermon illustration that like, like oh, this will get them. This is my whole life. Somebody asked me months ago, what do you do for fun? I was like, are you kidding? I'm like, I'm having the best day of my life every day that I come here and raise my kids and hang out with my family. Like, I get to preach God's word. Like, this is the most fun I could ever imagine having. And it's not about me. It's about you. It's about my, my core belief in my heart that this congregation will change the entire world. And the problem is, 
We all don't believe that. That's why I stand up here and yell at you every Sunday. Not because I figured something out you didn't. Not at all. It's because I need you. I need you to teach me. I need you to lead me. And believe it or not, the person sitting next to you, look to your left and look to your right. You are desperate for them. Whether you believe it or not, you are utterly desperate for the person sitting next to you. And when we think about like, oh, I'm just going to go to church for 90 minutes and leave. Maybe 95 minutes today. We missed, we missed this. We missed the heart of this. The world is not chasing after Christianity because of Christians. And because the God of this world has blinded their eyes in this age. But if every one of us walked out of here and was like, you would not believe the joy that has abounded to me. You would not believe how my God has abounded in grace to me, overflowing, so that I could be ready and able to do every good work at any time for his glory and have fun doing it. If we all walked out of here saying that, doing that, if you walk back into Karen Circle, if you go to whatever restaurant you're going to celebrate Mother's Day with, if you did that today, somebody would say, what on earth are you doing? And you would say, I'm following Jesus. Because that is the answer our world needs. So we're going to sing a song that we sung on Friday. It's called Jaira. It comes from a beautiful story in Genesis chapter 22, the 14th verse, when Abraham sacrifices the most precious thing in his life. Because the most precious thing in his wife, sadly, wasn't his wife. He wouldn't have lied on her like he did if it was. It was his son, Isaac, the child of promise that he waited decades for. And God said he was supposed to sacrifice him. Could you imagine? Many of us could imagine the heartbreak because we felt that. Maybe not the sacrifice of our child, but we felt the sacrifice of a life I thought I was going to hold on to. A relationship I thought would never end. And then Abraham says, look, God has provided for me. And there's a ram in a thicket. And he says, this place, right here, my God provided for me. So the song Jaira, Jehovah Jaira, means God our provider. We're going to sing this song because he's enough, amen? We're going to sing this song because perhaps right here, God provided something for you. Perhaps right here, you were looking at the sacrifices you were going to have to make, and you said, oh, no, 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 no. My God is going to supply everything. I will have all sufficiency in all things to do every good work that he will ever call me to with generosity and a joyful heart. Because God can provide for us. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are our great provider. Thank you that it is by your hand alone, Jesus Christ, that we have every spiritual blessing. So we give you glory today. We give you praise today. I thank you that we got to talk about a series where people thought we were talking about money, but we were talking about the generosity that comes from the throne of grace, the generosity that comes from heaven. So Jesus, I thank you for your gospel, your good news that changes lives, that shapes hearts, that grabs everything in our heart and mind and pours it back into your great rescue mission, Father. So please, fill us with joy. Convince us today by the power of the Holy Spirit that you are enough for us, 
that I don't have to chase something to be good. I don't have to look a certain way to be loved. I don't have to have X amount of things or two commas in my bank account to be privileged. I'm privileged because I'm the son of a king. I'm privileged because my family is royalty. I'm privileged because one day we're going to inherit the earth. I'm privileged because one day I'm going to live with you in eternity, in heaven, singing where there's no pain, no tears, no sadness. I will never sin again in heaven with you. Thank you for that privilege. Pour it out of our hearts today. As we sing Jaira, you are enough. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Together we say amen and hallelujah. Let's stand up and give God a praise of hallelujah today. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.